0: To Cooper Talk. Oh, welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people, through this stay home, I'm usually a jeans guy, but through staying home for the last few weeks, I've become a sweatpants guy. I never really wore sweats, and now I'm wearing them all the time. I go to the grocery store, I'm wearing sweats. I go to pick up toiletries, I'm wearing sweats. The other day I had a business call. I go on Zoom, I put a nice shirt on. I wore sweats. So I'm going to tell you, I think it's going to be really confusing for me when this all ends because I think a lot of people are going to be addicted to sweats. Anyway, we have a great show today. My guest, what can I say about him? I you know, I I go through IMDb for a lot of guests, and if I see like 180 credits or like 200 credits, I'm impressed. This gentleman has over 500 IMDb credits, people. 500. And my guest is Rob Paulson. How you doing, Rob? Hey, man, I'm good.
1: No sweat. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was teed up for me. Um, I'm great, Steve. Thank you very much, buddy. It's uh, a, a real pleasure to be with you this morning. The, uh, the uh, existential circumstances notwithstanding, I'm hopeful that uh, people out there will get a kick out of Yakko and Pinky and Carl and Donatello and the rest of them banging around in my melon. So thanks a lot for having me on.
0: No problem. Now, how are you dealing with the staying at home? Is it affecting you? Are you going out a little bit or what are you doing?
1: Well, going out, um, we we are definitely adhering to the uh, the guidelines um, uh, set forth by uh, pretty much the governor here in, in California, who said, "Look, stop it, just stay at home," and um, we do that. Um, I've heard some pretty heartening news that the uh, the curve, as it's been come to call, uh, be called, has flattened a bit in L.A. I don't. I, I, again, much smarter people than I are making those determinations, but. We also, uh, my wife and I have a place up here in San Simeon on the central coast of California, uh, which is a fabulous place to do anything, much less sit out um, <laughs> a, uh, a worldwide pandemic. So I am uh, a very, very fortunate fellow that I have a, uh, a safe, warm place to, um, to ride this out. But when it's on the beach, um, then it's just uh, I've got zero to complain about it. I'm incredibly fortunate.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I want to talk about your career. It's, you've had an amazing career. But I want to talk about your book and your battle with cancer. Thank you. Uh, you wrote a book, people. You wrote a book called Voice Lessons, How Do a Couple of Ninja Turtles, Pinky, and Animaniacs Save My Life. Tell me tell me about your battle. I want to hear about this because I know you're going out and talking to people about it. And it's such a, it's a subject that everyone knows someone who's been afflicted by cancer. And yours hit where your money, where your moneymaker was. Tell me what happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, I thank you, firstly, for giving me the opportunity. That's uh, that's a big deal. This is this is really what it's all about, is having nice folks like you to uh, have me come on and speak about it. That's that's where we start to make a difference. Um, four years ago, actually, it's gone by so quickly, but uh, I was going through my life doing my gig, which has been an incredibly um, wonderful way to make a living, essentially getting paid to do it. I used to get you in trouble in seventh grade. Um <laughs> No problems. Um, I felt pretty, pretty good. I'm an athletic guy. All of that. I had a lump on the left side of my neck that I uh, was quite aware of for probably six months. But being a typical weekend warrior athlete guy, unless something is uh, uh, hanging off, or I'm bleeding profusely, I don't go to the doctor unless it's for my yearly physical, which I did. And I said to the doc, "What do you think about this?" And I got to tell you, Steve, five seconds. He put his fingers on it, my neck, and said, "No, man, this is this is not good." And it turned out to be uh, stage three throat cancer, and it was staged that way because the area on my neck was the point at which, the point to which, the cancer had already spread. Um, And so the primary tumor was at the base of my throat, and I then went through a pretty rigorous, pretty tough um, regimen of chemo and radiation for uh, seven weeks. Um, But I was told at the very beginning, look. The great news about this type of cancer uh, is that it's very treatable, not unlike colon uh, cancer. That if you get it early enough, you're you got really good odds. Uh, and so I am cured, as far as I'm concerned. Not, uh, we're not talking about um, uh, being in remission. This is a, it's gone. Um, and so it so happens that uh, the nice folks at the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance came to me. Uh, about a year ago, and said, how would you feel about being our spokes-tune or spokes-guy for 2020? And I was, I could not jump at the opportunity fast enough. Uh, So now, uh, as a result of my book, and nice people like you, I get a chance to talk about this, but I think the reason that it was probably a bit more, pardon me, um, uh, not powerful, but maybe resonates a little more with people, is that what, what I do for a living Uh, I'm a great example of, look, I speak and sing at a pretty high level and have done this now for almost, what, 35 years here in L.A. And there are hundreds of millions of people around the world that know these characters that I've had a part in creating. And if I can get back to doing this at this level, after that sort of intense treatment, uh, then I'm a good example of of why you should have this looked at. Because it's not only curable, but you're going to be okay, and um, and I now have, gosh, silver lining isn't adequate. I have a platinum lining to my whole cancer experience, and also the fact that, as you said earlier, cancer touches all of us. It's so sadly ubiquitous, um, even pro- even more so than you know this this dreaded COVID nineteen, and uh, people get have much more dire circumstances than I. So. Just the fact that it is cancer doesn't mean that it's not something
0: you can't beat, and I'm living proof. Now, having cancer is very scary for you, but what was it like? Because when you heard it was your throat, and that's been your whole life. As I said, you've created iconic characters. What What went through your mind at that point? What were you thinking when you first heard that diagnosis? Well...
1: I have to tell you that neither I nor my wife nor my son nor the people who love me freaked out. None of us did. It was that, that a perfect example of that axiom that we make plans and God laughs. Uh, you know, you, you go into your life and you're going, I'm a, I'm a badass. I've got my Emmy. I've got my awards. I'm doing my groovy thing, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's, oh yeah, how about throat cancer? Uh, but I have to tell you, Steve, that not once did we freak out. And I'm and I, I'm not saying that freaking out is a bad thing. <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming. Okay? Everybody's got to deal with it. However, I was 59 years old. I'd had a remarkable career by any measure. I have people who love me, uh, not only my... Who, fabulous family, but people who love these characters and and sort of by extension love me love the people who get to create these things, I had zero to be sad about. Um, I wasn't ready to stop work, so that really kind of got my attention. But uh, again, I was told at the beginning, we're going to be able to save your life. Can we save your voice to the extent that you'll be able to do it at at the same level? We don't know. And they were very uh, upfront about that. However, we do know that if you don't do this, you're going to end up like Roger Ebert, and that's not how you want to leave. It's a messy way to go. Um, and I, I of course, didn't waste any time getting started with it. But also, as a result of this incredible career, I have had hundreds, I mean hundreds of children and their parents, whom I've gotten to speak with both in person and on the phone and via Skype and uh, you know, all the other stuff, who were... Stricken with deadly cancers throughout my whole career, who wanted to talk to Raphael or Donatello or Pinky or Yako or Carl Weezer or you name it, any of the characters that just I've done, and we all do it, not just me. Um, and so, talk about profiles and courage. We weren't talking about my five-year-old who had just been diagnosed with their neuroblastoma or delioblastoma. We weren't talking about my little daughter who just, you know, developed uh, uh, juvenile diabetes or or a a, a heart issue that required surgery right out of the gate. You know, we weren't talking about me being a 28 or a 32 year old father uh, or mother who was stricken with cancer and wasn't going to get to see their children graduate from high school. We were talking about that. We were talking about an old guy who's had a hell of a run and was dealt a bit of a blow, but why not? Jesus Christ, everybody who's listening has got a story about someone whom they love. So it was my turn. And now I get to do this. And so my career has gotten to be even better and even bigger because I get a chance to do some good. Apart from making a living, making people happy, now I get to spread information that might even save their lives. I mean, you're talking to a lottery winner, man. I, I really think it's about how you perceive what is a problem, in quotes. You know? Um, and right now we're we're, we're dealing with... Um, this uh, scourge uh, all over the world. And I am riding this out and talking to another nice fellow who's given me this opportunity. And millions of us are inconvenienced. um, But most of us aren't dealing with it living on the street or living in a tent somewhere or living, uh, you know what I mean? So I, I, I get to talk about how I can help people save their lives when this is over. So all things considered... It was uh, certainly something that I didn't want to deal with, and it was quite, um, well, there were moments where it was frightening, but never it was somewhere it was, why me? Or, oh, my God, I make a living with my voice, poor me. You know, Jack Dempsey just died. Um, uh, Rick Dempsey, not his name, not Jack Dempsey. He was a prize fighter. Um, the guy who used to kick for the New Orleans Saints. Tom Dempsey. Support, Tom Dempsey. Tom Dempsey. Great. The, the 63-yard field goal he kicked, in his career that used to be the longest on record was against my Detroit Lions, which don't even get me started about, about <laughs> feeling bad. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that his parents knew that when this young man saw a predisposition for football, they thought, wow, he might have a hell of a foot. And he did. He was born with half a foot. And I love Tom's example. That's just remarkable. And so here I am with a guy who speaks for a living, and I was given a few lemons, and I found a way to make lemonade. And again, it's not just me. It's people like you giving me a chance to do it. So thank you for this this glorious
0: chance. Well, I got to ask you, you know, you you had this chance, and you've had such a great career. How did you get into voice work? When you were a kid, what did you want to do?
1: Well, I wanted to be a hockey player. I um, grew up in Michigan my heros Gordy Howe <clears throat> I love the Red Wings now they suck but they were you know they they sucked before they were called the dead things for years and I've been with them since 19 I don't know 60 something so I've enjoyed the, the down years and the big years um, but uh, that's what I wanted to do and I learned at about 18 17 having done some junior hockey and gotten to a certain level, but I had neither the talent, temperament, nor dental insurance to make a dime <laughs> as a hockey player. Uh, the other thing that really floated my boat was uh, performing. Not necessarily being a voice guy, but uh, that's where I certainly derived a lot of joy for my soul was to cover up character voices. But, all, but not necessarily thinking, I'm just going to do cartoons. I moved to L.A. in 1978, ostensibly to do live action, and that's what I was doing. TV movies, a lot of commercials, voice of whatever I could. I was a singer who became an actor, so I was doing a lot of demos for friends who would write songs and stuff like that. And then the opportunity came after doing a lot of on-camera to audition for uh, uh, animation work. And In those days, the first shows I did were G.I. Joe and Transformers, and it took me about five minutes to think, man, this is the gig. Nobody cares what I look like. This isn't about how tall you are, fat you are, white, black, green, orange, thin, tall. It doesn't matter. It's about being the the purest form of acting. You're creating characters that don't even live in your world. Um, And I love that. And it didn't take me long to kind of jump in with both feet and and let the on-camera stuff go because I was starting to get a lot of work but the more work I got, the bigger projects I got to work on. Um, and so the Disney Afternoon came along and all that stuff, some Gummy Bears, and winged Duck, and Goof Troop. In fact, today, um, this is the 25th anniversary of a movie I did years ago called The Goofy Movie, in which I played a character called PJ, <laughs> who is Max's buddy. And uh, PJ and I are gonna be on a Disney thing today because uh, D23, the Disney Worldwide, um, uh, fan club is hosting this Friday there's gonna be a, a worldwide watch party of the 25th anniversary of the goofy movie so a bunch of us uh, Bill Farmer who's goofy and uh, Jim Cummings who's uh, Pete my dad um, a bunch of us are gonna do a little uh, thing this afternoon but my point is that uh, I my timing was good so after I did all the Disney stuff uh, Darkwing Duck um, Duck take you name it, that the Warner Brothers kind of did the same thing, and so I did um, Tiny Toons, and that led to Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs, and, um, Freakazoid and um, uh, Hysteria, and then it went over to Nickelodeon, and did Jimmy um, Neutron and Fairly Odd Parents, and uh, gosh, Ninja Turtles, again. I did uh, Raphael when you were a little guy, and then I got to be Donatello on the uh, 2012 version over at Nickelodeon for another five years. And now we're back to doing Pinky in the Brain and Animaniacs again. So it's a remarkable experience to get to do this and live long enough and be able to work at, uh, with these profoundly gifted people and now bring all uh, all these characters to uh, to a brand new generation of people. I could make the argument that there might be places in the world who don't know Brad Pitt, but you tell them about Donatello and Raphael and they go, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, who got ninjas? Totally, you know?
0: No, no. Um, it's pretty cool. Now, in the beginning, when you were doing this, and you're starting to audition, how were you differentiating your voices? Because you're still new to it, and it's not like now that you've done it for so long. But in the beginning, when you had to go to an audition, were you ever worried that one of your voices might sound a little like another one of your voices, or didn't that concern you? Yeah, it,
1: well, it, it did a little bit, not until I started getting really busy, because then I uh, I I would have people who would say, you know, I really like that character you do on Animaniacs, you know, that character Yakko. I'd say, yeah, well, we'd like to do something like that. And that kind of, that, you know, I I didn't want to do anything that would uh, upset the apple cart over at Warner Brothers, man, because that was a big gig. But that's where the challenge comes in, and acting is acting. Um, And uh, this is a good analogy for me. Because it's about creating characters. Everybody can do a funny voice. That's not, and I'm not saying this to to poo poo anybody's desire to be, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> excuse me, to um, be fun or funny or creative. Um, but we can all do funny voices. Um, but the trick is, can you maintain the voice, get the goal and a character that lasts longer than a party show? <coughs> and, uh, I had my own experience with that, um, with what I just mentioned, being Raphael on the original Turtles. Uh, Twenty-five years later, I guess it was that the folks that put together the 2012 version at Nickelodeon brought me in to read for what they wanted from Donatello, and um, I ended up getting the job. And I was a little bit concerned that a lot of folks who'd grown up watching the original Turtles might say, "Oh, well, they went—you know—they went back to the." Um, you know they went back to the well one too many times and got this guy Rob Paulson who was on the original show and you know I don't know it's going to be weird hearing Raphael coming out of Donatello's mouth but I got to tell you the what happened was uh, the character of Donatello was different uh, by quite a bit than what Raphael was for me there was a lot of difference in the characters and my job was to imbue the character of Donatello with enough of its own uh, characteristics and soul that that people said, oh yeah, it kind of sounds the same, but it's completely different. And they did. And that means I did my job well. And the only way that I can make an analogy to that in terms of on camera is, and make no mistake, I'm not comparing myself to Jack Nicholson. But Jack Nicholson sounds like Jack Nicholson. And we love Jack. Every time you hear Jack, he sounds like Jack, whether it's here's Johnny or, um, <laughs> or um, you know, um, I don't know, Mrs. Mulray. It looks like murder to me. I mean, whether it's um, Chinatown or Postman Orange Wings twice or Batman it's Jack, but Jack's a good actor. And so his characters, you know, uh, Jake's character in Chinatown is different than, than uh, Nicholson's character in Easy Rider but he still sounds like Jack. And my Rob sounds like Rob. Raphael sounds a lot like me. And I did, I don't know, 200 episodes of that character. Donatello sounds a lot like me, and I don't think anybody with ears would, would be unable to discern that it was the same actor. But the characters are completely different. And I, I have to tell you, I've not had one review. <laughs> and Turtles is a big franchise. I've not had anybody say, yeah, I liked it except Rob Paulson being Donatello was a big mistake. <laughs> not once, not once. Um, and so it means I did my job, and I should be good at it by now, man. I've done it for thirty-five or forty years. If I'm not good at it now, I got no business
0: doing it now. Yeah, exactly. Now you, you made a comment. Uh, you said, you know, acting—it's—it's not—it's voice acting is still acting. It's not just you know doing a voice in a right. party. <clears throat> You know, actors take an acting class, they prep that way. I know there's voiceover classes, but I don't know really how they work on voice actors' classes. But as a voice actor, how do you prepare for a role? Is it something that you study? Like, you know, an actor will rehearse and rehearse. How do you prepare yeah. for it?
1: Yeah, I, I
0: did study, and I still
1: study. Um, I did uh, a lot of improv classes, uh, the groundlings, a lot of uh, uh, theater classes, scene study classes here in L.A. for years and years and years. Lots of practical experience, hundreds of performances on stage when I was a kid. I mean, in my 20s, traveling around the United States and Canada uh, before I moved to L.A. and then, of course, doing a lot of live action stuff here. But I also, don't forget, I'm surrounded by the best of the best. I really did learn at the feet or at the vocal cords of the masters as it were <clears throat> because <clears throat> pardon me, the guy makes my living and I'm a little bit hoarse this morning uh, but I uh, I did, I got to work with the best of the best and I still do uh, the people that check in on me and we all checking in on each other, my friends are Kevin Conroy as Batman uh, Mark Hamill is the Joker Billy West called yesterday Maurice LaMarche the brain and Um, Tress McNeil who's Dot and Babs and um, the Crazy Cat Lady and Nancy Cartwright who's Bart from the Simpsons all these people are my friends and so we've all grown up together Um, John DiMaggio, Bender I just talked to John the day before yesterday so you know we're we're all uh, it's almost impossible not to get better when you're around these people every day for year after year after a year, I, I, again, I mentioned about the, the Goofy movie later today. I'm going to be around, you know, Jim Cummings. Look up Jim Cummings on IMDb, you guys. The same guy that's Winnie the Pooh is the Tasmanian Devil. How's that for range? Um, and we're going to be talking to each other later today. And we play golf together. We did, I'm around these people all the time. And so I learned by doing. Um, I also study because I know I'm gonna get better, and what I study are things that I pick up from other people, people I see on TV, people I I listen to in the grocery store when we're not (laughs) shut down. I (laughs) swear to God, it's what what all actors do. We are giant sponges, you've heard that phrase a lot, and it's really true, Um, and it just makes me happy. I'm really no different at 64 than I was at 14 or at 11 the same things that make my soul happy now that just make me laugh for the sake of laughing are things that I put into practice at work. And so I get to work on new projects like Rick and Morty and other shows because Dan Harmon and, and um, Justin Roiland grew up saying, Hey, someday when I have my show, my own show, I'm going to hire Rob Paulson and Maurice LaMarche, whom I love as Pinky in the Brain, but I'm going to have them on my show. And it turned out to be Rick and Morty. So, um, we all, and I know I'm speaking for Billy West and Maurice and Tress McNeil, all of us continue to find ways to get better and better and better because not only do we like to compete, but we just, we got a Jones to do this gig and um, and we get to still play in the, the coolest sandbox in Hollywood. It's, it's not, a, it's, it is never not a really wonderful thing to do. So we know how lucky we are and the traditional ways that actors prepare get better scene study doing theater I still do it all Um, myself and my partner Randy Rogel pardon me who wrote most of the songs that folks remember from Animaniacs including United States Canada, Mexico Panama Haiti Jamaica Peru Um, that song has become a seminal piece of American art that two minute cartoon of Yakko singing all the countries of the world is It is a brilliant piece of animation. I got to sing it, but it weren't just about me, man. I can't draw stick figures. And look, I'm good at my job, but writing that stuff, that's the genius. And Randy and I have a show that's licensed by Warner Brothers and we get to take the music of Animaniacs around the country and perform it with orchestras. That is a gas. And so I, you know, I'm back to doing live stuff now too, so it's always learning. Every time I do a live show, I learn something that helps me in my next show. I'll get to do a bit that is spontaneous, and I'll think, ooh, shove this in your mental Rolodex, because the next time this circumstance pops up, you know you're gonna get a laugh. And it's just a, it's a work in progress, and I love
0: that. Well, how uh, explain to me the live show, because that must, must be a great feeling, because people are coming in, they know the character, they yeah. love the character. Uh, yeah. How do you get ready for that? Because it's, you're not going into a studio, you're not going to a sound room, you're going live, and there's no retakes. How do you get ready for that?
1: Um, I think by what I just said, is that by doing it for a long time, um, I love the... The sort of feel, a of, of feeling of, of doing it without a net. I love that. Um, there is, as any performer will tell you, there is something about uh, when you know when it's showtime. Um, just like uh, you know Roy Scheider and Fosse, you know showtime. There, there is nothing like it. Um, whether fifty people show up or five thousand, once it's time to go and and you know have. 25, 30 different songs committed to memory. Um, You're going to do certain things that uh, things may break, whatever, you're ready to rock and roll. And it's just a blast. Um, And the cool thing is that we don't dress up like the characters. You ought to walk out there in a pinky suit. (laughs) But um, all I have to do is say, hey, God, look at all the people. And everybody flips out. And it is nothing short of fabulous. Uh, And it happens every single time. Um, Randy's music is just timeless. And whether I'm singing the countries of the world or it's a great big universe and we're all really puny. We're just tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney. People love that. And we play the cartoons behind us on a big screen. We uh, interact with the crowd. We do Q&As afterwards. People bring their stuff for us to sign. It's so great, and, and it's not just animaniac stuff. People stand in line for me to sign their Rick and Morty stuff and their Ninja Turtles stuff. That's a 30-year gap, and I got to be part of all of it. And what happens is we, we, the, the mean age of the audience is reflective of the audience at home. The people who come to see us live are seven or eight years old and 78 years old. It's incredible we get two or three generations of fans who want to hear about Ninja Turtles or Animaniacs or Pinky and the Brain how the songs were made or songs that didn't make it and, and blow your mind when you hear them. Songs that will be coming out of the new versions of the show. It's, it's the, the fan base is, is very, very uh, uh, supportive and it's huge, <laughs> really big. And uh, it's, Man, it's just
0: a gas. Well, you mentioned Mutant Ninja ninja Turtles, the people that show up. How did you get that part? Was it a long audition process?
1: Yeah, it was just a regular audition. In fact, myself uh, and Townsend Coleman, who ended up being Michelangelo, and we did another show together that was really fabulous called The Tick. Um, I was Arthur, and Townsend played the the title role. And he and I were working together on a show called... uh, Raggle Rock, an animated version of the Jim Henson show, which I don't think was nearly as good as the Henson show, but nonetheless, we were working on it. And the director came in one day, his name was Stu Rosen, and Stu said, hey, you guys, I'm auditioning this show based on uh, kind of an underground comic called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, you're going to get a phone call from your agents, and I'll see you guys at the audition next week. And we auditioned and got a few callbacks, and one thing led to another, and boom. We got to be part of Ninja Turtles, but I mentioned Mark Hamill earlier. You know, everybody knows Mark Hamill as the savior of the universe, but Mark was the Joker on Batman for 20 years. And um, often talks about, you know, he's a he's a total geek, a total fanboy with all <laughs> things uh, pop culture. And um, I asked him years ago. We were working on a show called Time Squad at... at uh, uh, Cartoon Network with Pam Adlon and myself and Mark. we the three characters on this really fun show. <clears throat> but I asked them then, because we've known each other now for over 20 years, but I was just getting to know Mark, and of course, I'm a Star Wars fan, and I I asked them the same question you asked me. I said, God, how did Star Wars come about? Come about. Same thing, just a general audition. And uh, your, your uh, agent calls you and says, hey man, there's a space movie being done by the guy who did American Graffiti. Um, off you go and that's how it happened. It was no different. So the lesson there boys and girls is that, especially if you're an actor, never say no to an audition because you never know. It might be Ninja Turtles, it might be Star Wars, it might be nothing, but you never know. And uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) I rarely say no these days, unless it's something that is so derivative that I know that. uh, that I, I would not be of any help to it or something that I've done so many times that it's really not smart for me to do it. But um, by and large, I just, you know, I, I, I never know when the next thing I'm doing is going to be the next fill in the blank. And it's pretty cool when it happens.
0: Now, you've done, you've done accents, you know, in, in uh, Johnny Quest and uh, Pinky. When did you start learning how to do accents? Is, is that something that you cultivated through your career?
1: Yes, and I still work on it. Um, I've been working on the South African dialect, which is very difficult for me. It's quite hard to work. Uh, I found it, that one to be quite fascinating. Um, very difficult. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I was, I was a kid. My heroes were Victor Borga, Jonathan Winters, the Pythons, Peter Sellers, The Goon Show, um, and so Peter Ustinov, guys who did remarkable dialects. Um, and, uh, I was just really transfixed by all of them. And then I got to work with Jonathan Winters a lot on Smurfs and boy, was that a mind blower. Um, Mel blank, of course, bugs, Gappy, Tweety, Elmer, <laughs> you name it. Um, I got to work with Mel a couple of times. That was pretty remarkable. He was 80 when I was working with him. But, um, uh, and then because I was such a huge fan of the pythons, lo and behold, years later, Eric Idle, played Pinky's mom and dad in an episode of Pinky and the Brain, and that was pretty mind-blowing. But yeah, I was working on that from the time I was probably seven or eight, ten years old, just because it was fun, and I had a little reel to Panasonic tape recorder, and I would record them and do a little sound productions with friends of mine. <clears throat> um, uh, so when I wasn't playing hockey, I was at home working on weird stuff in my bedroom, so... There you go, kids. You never know when you're a failed hockey player, it turns out to be Pinky and Yakko. Who, who knows? It's crazy.
0: What What did you bring to the table when you went to do Pinky? Did you have it already in your in your head, or did they give you direction and you made it your own? How did you, did you develop the character?
1: Both. Um, you kind of hit the nail on the head. When you're auditioning for a character uh, on a show that has a lot of a lot of the right ingredients from the get-go. I mean, you're at Warner Brothers Animation with that pedigree, and then you've got Steven Spielberg involved and Say No More. Um,
0: You
1: you know you're already going to be dealing with the best of the best, the best animators, the best musicians, the best composers. Um, So when you get down to the nitty-gritty and you might be considered for a job on that show, um, the producers and the writers and Mr. Spielberg all have input. Um, But my choice of... Having Pinky have a British accent was just something I, again, as a result of my love for the Pythons, and it wasn't my only audition. Uh, I mean, I did a bunch of different things. Don't ask me to remember them because I don't. It was 27 almost years ago, but I know that I had six different callbacks over a two-month period, Um, and there were lots of other stuff for both Yakko and Pinky. Um, and I also played a character called Dr. Smith whom I stole from Peter Sellers, because my favorite movie of all time is Dr. Strangelove. Um, But I know that I stole that character from uh, Peter Sellers, you know, and and he was the character of the doctor in the wheelchair, um, and it worked for Animaniacs, but there were a bunch of other things that I threw at the wall, and when we got right down to it, Tom Ruger, who created the show with Mr. Spielberg, gave me a lot of room, and they settled on out. I'm Pinky, and Doctor Scratch and Smith, and i will uh, be forever great, um, it was a remarkable experience, and it's turned out to be a lifetime of joy, and um, boy, you're talking to a lottery winner, Steve.
0: Now, now, the shows were so big, and people don't know who you are, and it would take, you know, it takes a certain person not to sit there and tell everyone, hey, I'm the voice of Pinky, How did you, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it personally? Because, you know, anyone who's in in entertainment, we crave attention. And for you, everyone knows who these characters are, but they don't know you. How did you deal with that?
1: Well, firstly, I, I, you nailed it. It is, uh, you know what, Steve, it's a conundrum only if you allow it to be one. Um, I have always had, I think, a fairly healthy ego. And I remember my mother, whom I miss every day. Um, I miss my dad about once every five weeks, and he would totally get that. But um, I uh, I remember my mother saying when I was starting to get pretty good at this, and I was getting, you know, to be in people would ask me to be in their bands or be in plays and stuff when I was a kid. And she would say, "Honey, um, just remember, if your horn is worth tooting, somebody else will toot it for you." And I never lost track of that. I thought, you know. She's right. If you're really any good at this, um, you don't need somebody else to tell you to, to, um, I'm sorry. You don't need to be the one to tell your friends and family and yourself, you know, when it's good and you know, when it's not. But in terms of other people, it really means a lot more coming from somebody else. It, It never excited me, um, to be able to say, Hey, guess what? I'm the guy who did blah, 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 blah. Um, I knew when I played well in a game, in a hockey game, and I knew when the best player on the team took a moment to say to me, dude, you really, that, that shot you let go, that that, that rush you let up the ice, that was, I mean, you really played it, and, and that made me feel good. So I learned that at an early age because I was not the best player on the team, obviously, um, and then I remember telling myself, you know, because my mom, again, asked me, when I started to work a lot, She said, wow, I guess you really made it, honey. And I know what she meant. She meant because I was able to buy a house and cars and and, uh, braces on my kids' teeth like normal people. But for me, it was about being uh, uh, congratulated or included by people whom I admired. And I always told my, my parents that I would feel like I made it when I was respected by the people whom I respect. And when that started to happen, that is a feeling unlike um, anything that I ever would have gotten by tooting my own horn. Um, to be able to uh, get a compliment from people whom I would stop what I'm doing to go listen to, or make it a point to say, I don't have any work today. I'm going to go watch this woman record. I'm going to go watch this woman sing uh, because she really is the you know these knees. And then to work with this person and say, hey, man, I, wow, where did you come up with that? That's really what this is about. Um, and you know what? It turns out that in the long run, it's come full circle because of nice people like you and the IMDb and, uh, you know, are going to doing tons of live performances and comic cons all over the world, um, which will hopefully come back. But every time I go somewhere and sing uh, The Countries of the World, somebody videos it and puts it online. And now I can be at a farmer's market here in San Simeon happened a couple of months ago. I was buying some tomatoes and the sweet kid from a farm somewhere in Paso Robles says, are you Rob Paulson? (laughs) 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 Yeah. Are you with the IRS? (laughs) How do you know me? (laughs) You know, he said, Oh my God, I'm a huge fan. All my, my, all my friends, man, we watch you and I've been getting videos and probably even podcasted. So it's changing. Um, Because of the nature of of social media. And I I have to tell you, man, if you and I were having this lovely conversation in a a diner in Jersey, and the waitress found out who I was, and probably who you were, they would flip out, but not in a way that is off-putting. They would just go, oh my God, I can't tell you how much, would you please say hello, nurse? Hello, And they often, Steve will start to cry because it reminds them of a time in their life that was perfect that they are seeking to sort of find again and just that voice does that to them and and again let's make it clear I learned very early I'm. I, it's not the Rob Balson show I'm part of it the characters are famous and I am fine with that but there is something about the voice and it happened to me when I got to work with Mel Blank. I said I must have the courage to say, Mr. Blank, if you don't mind. And he looked at me, he knew what I wanted. He looked at me and said, yeah what's up, Doc? And it blew my mind. I mean, really, like, I, I, was, I was shaking. Uh, I really did. I mean, I, I, it was off-putting in a really, really cool way. But it was, like, bizarre how it affected me. And um, go back and watch uh, Mel Blank on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson on YouTube. And within a... a 20 30 seconds he's got Johnny and the whole audience in the palm of his hand. He looks nothing like bugs you know <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. He's, he's a god to them and um, he knows that, that he didn't draw that was Chuck the genius of Chuck Jones. It's a hugely collaborative effort but this is a long rambling way of, and clearly I've no trouble making a living of sp- uh, speaking but it's a long rambling way of, of making sense out of the fact that the characters are the famous but don't feel sorry for me. I, uh, I enjoy a lot of, uh, incredible, uh, sort of tangential thing, but, um, nobody, there's no downside to it because when people find out what I do and they want to hear more of it, it just makes everybody happy. There's no downside. It's not uh, cumbersome. It's not, Oh shit. I can't go into target today. None of that. And I have friends to whom that's a problem. Um, they're all really nice. But they have days when they just don't feel like taking a selfie. And um, they have to sort of be careful not to, not to be in a bad mood. And, you, you, and, and I don't have that. Because if people do take the time to stop me in a grocery store, and it probably happens two or three times a month now, um, and they do. But it's never uh, anything but joyful. And I always accommodate them because I know how lucky I am and I know what's fixing to happen. Okay. As soon as I say, Narf, they do what you're probably doing. They smile, they go, oh my God, oh my God. So I, I know that it's a happy experience and I can't get enough of it. It's, it's um, I, I really don't, when I get these great opportunities to talk to people like you, I, I really don't know how to quantify how lucky I am. So you're doing me a big favor by reminding me. <laughs> well, <laughs>
0: Thanks. I got a question for you. Besides the characters, you've done voiceover work too. Like, What are some of the voiceover campaigns you've done?
1: The campaigns? Oh gosh, um, probably the one that people know the most is um, I did a character for seven years for Honda called Mr. Opportunity, where um, I sold uh, Hondas, a little animated guy who's Mr. Opportunity. At the end of the the end of every model year, they would have the uh, the uh, year end, you know, I'm Mr. Opportunity and I'm knocking, ding ding. But I did this really bitchin' commercial years ago. It was, it's a great campaign, but I was only in one commercial, but I was in the first one. And um, you guys probably remember the Got Milk campaign, but there was this, the, the first commercial was with me and an actor named Sean Whalen. Uh, I did the voiceover part, I was a, I played the character, a guy on a radio who was uh, doing a, uh, a contest for $10,000, name the composer, mm-hmm. uh, no, no, it was, it was name, um, uh, who shot Alexander Hamilton in the famous duel? And the answer was, uh, is of course, uh, Aaron Burr. But this wonderful actor, Sean Whalen, great character actor, uh, is sitting in a, uh, it's a very clever spot. He's sort of a night watchman in a, uh, in a museum, eating a peanut butter sandwich and he's listening to the radio When I come on and say for $10,000 and he calls in and he's got a peanut butter sandwich <laughs> in his mouth and he says, Aaron Burr, but it sounds like, Oh, I'm blah. and he goes, Oh no, wait a minute. He goes to get a, some milk and he's out of milk. And I'm the guy that I can't understand what he's saying. And so I say, Oh, I'm sorry. Better luck next time. Click. And then they cut to him and he's saying, Oh, blah. and then the guy comes on and says, "Got milk. But that commercial is a fantastic commercial. It's so clever. And it turns out it was directed by um, Michael Bay, who went on to, you know, Transformers fame and all those big blockbuster movies. Um, talk about six degrees of separation. I was in the original Transformers cartoon show and did that, and Michael Bay directed me in this. I mean, it's crazy. So, uh, yeah, a couple different campaigns, but um, um, it's you just never know when the next cool one's coming along, but... Again, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares what I look like. They don't care that when what? I was a kid, they didn't care that I was a skinny-looking kid from Michigan at twenty-five, and now that I'm an old skinny guy from Michigan, they don't care what I look like. So it's a pretty cool gig.
0: Now, now, what's the difference in the uh, in the sets? Like when you're in an animated show, it's probably a lot more fun than when you're doing an ad campaign. Well,
1: oh, you mean being going to work? Yeah, being on on a set. Well, it, at a in an animated show, it's just being in a studio with recording devices and other actors. Um, sometimes we get to see a little storyboard stuff, but we never see anything resembling, uh, what you folks see on TV for months and months after we do our work. All the animation is done to fit what we do initially in the studio. Um, that way we're not limited by what's on the screen. We can improvise and writers can tweak a line and then the animation is done to fit what we do. Um, but, um, when you go to work on a movie set, of course, if you're working on something like uh, uh, Beetlejuice, it's a it's it's fantastic set, or The Grinch, you know, it's all just just fantasy. Um, depending on the movie, you know, it's just a lot of lights and stuff. And uh, the great thing about animation is you're not limited by by the daylight. You can work on things and knock out two or three shows in a day. I would go from working on Animaniacs in the morning to uh, Fairly Odd Parents in the early afternoon and uh, the mask um, in the late afternoon. So uh, that often happened. And um, it's a, it's pretty cool to go and work in several different worlds
0: in one day. Now, now when, when you were in the mask, you were playing a character that was already in a movie. How do you adapt to that? Because yes. you don't want to imitate it, really. I'm sure you want to bring your own angle to it. How do you develop a character like that?
1: Well, that I would... I would have to rely on my improvisation skills because um, uh, although we had a script for every episode, remember if I'm being the Stanley Ipkiss mask character that Jim Carrey did so beautifully in the features um, I uh, I'm doing, in this case I think we did three seasons so I did 39 half hours of the mask. Jim did two hours of it. So I had to extrapolate what made the characters that Jim was brilliant with, uh, interesting enough to, to last for you know, many more hours, albeit in animation. Um, and that really was uh, a, more of a challenge to me and my ability to imbue different characters with fun and interesting stuff character, uh, episode after episode. Um, and I have no doubt that Jim could have done it just as well, if not better, but hey man, if you're Jim Carrey and you get to make 20 million bucks a movie, you're not going to, you're not going to be doing a cartoon because they're not going to pay you 20 million bucks a half hour, you know, to do that. And so I was very fortunate. I, I, I had worked, um, on different features in which I would loop, that is, uh, speak for Jim in movies if he weren't, it av- wasn't available. I did that, I think in, um, liar, liar. Uh, and Eternal Sunshine, maybe one other one. And so, you know, if I'm auditioning for this and it makes sense, hey, that guy, Rob Paulson, does a really good impression, he sounds like Jim, we're not, our voice print isn't that different. And everybody can go, smokey, you know. Um, uh, And remember, Jim would probably not argue that when he was doing The Mask or Ace Ventura, he was pretty much a human cartoon. It was pretty much over the top. And, um, it's really easy to go, uh, somebody stop it because it's not subtle. And it's a lot for me to hang my sort of audio ha- hat on, you know? Um, but it, that's where my improv skills come into play because I'm not, a, I, I'm not limited by thinking inside the box. I have no problem swinging for the fences and trying stuff. I haven't tried. I have no problem, uh, trying stuff and having it fail. I, um, I then say, okay, that doesn't work. What's next? And that's a skill that I've learned over the years. That There's no, I don't, I'm not afraid of failure, even on a small scale. It's, we're not talking about losing your job. We're talking about, okay, that didn't work. That sucked. And in fact, that was really bad. So let's laugh at it and go on to the next one. And I'm not afraid of that. I'm not, I'm not at all limited by my, uh, my physicality and my, um, um, uh, uh, my ego, it doesn't come into play. I'm not afraid of having somebody say, nah, that sucked. Let's try something else. So that's how that works. Um, I'm I just I'm willing to play. And everybody who does this is willing to play, and we're not limited by, by uh, you know, whether or not it works. You know, so what? It didn't
0: work? We'll try it again. I, I got a question for you, because we had talked about your cancer in the beginning. <laughs> how long... Were you out of work? And what was your first role coming back when you knew you were better? Great
1: question. Um, Yeah, I was down for about, oh, three months, I guess. Um, And I probably should have been out longer. But I really was chomping a little bit to get back in it, uh, back in the saddle. And I think probably, as I said, my wife would tell you that I went back too early. uh, And that, I, I really really wanted to I, I it was really important for me and I know that a lot of folks should deal with life-threatening uh, issues just can't wait to get back at it uh, because it's a part of who we are and it also indicates that we're that we're okay you know something that I was familiar with and it satisfied me and my family on a lot of levels um, both personally and professionally and I I really needed to feel like I have some control and so that's why I did it. The first show I went back to was a, a show that I was working with my dear sweet trust McNeil. Um, uh, we were doing the, uh, the, the most recent version of a show called, for Netflix, we owned it, a really sweet little kid show called Veggie Tales. And um, uh, we were doing it for Netflix, and I went back to work. Um, and um, it was my dear friend Doug Naples. Uh, who was producing it, he created a show years ago uh, on which I worked uh, called Earthworm Jim. And then we went on to do another one together for Nickelodeon called Cat Scratch. Uh, so I worked with him a lot. And he was one of the folks that I let know when I was diagnosed because we were going to have to kind of put things on hold. I said to Doug, hey, I think I'm ready to come back to work. And he, of course, said, no, 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 not unless you're ready." And I said, yeah, I am. And um, I, uh, I had to sing a song. And it was a bit of a struggle. I had lost a couple of notes on the top end of my range. It turns out it was it was only transitory. Uh, I, I pretty much got it all back now, but this was a few years ago. And it was such a glorious thing to be back in the saddle. But I was really kind of hard on myself. And, and um, Doug kept saying, no, no, man, the song sounds great. In fact, look, let's just, we've got two great takes. Don't do any more. And I kept saying, no, 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 I really, I really want to do another one. He said, no, it, really, we got it. And I'll be damned, he was right. We went back to, to uh, do some post-production work on it um, about four or five months later when I was doing much better. And I came in and I said, oh boy, I can't wait to hear this. And you know what? It was really good. And I had maybe maybe one or two notes that didn't work and I had to fix it. It took me about four minutes to fix it. It was not at all as bad as I, as I thought it was. They kept everything. Nobody was any the wiser except for, except for me. And the the lesson was very valuable because there was somebody who cared about me, wasn't wasn't a family member, but part of my showbiz family. And he kept telling me, you know, Robbie, it sounds really good, but I was way too hard on myself because I thought that I needed to be perfect. And it turns out that I was pretty damn close to perfect, literally months after I'd had my throat radiated every day. And so that was a really great learning experience uh, for me moving forward to give myself a break and to say, you know what? Sometimes the best you can do is good enough. Um, And uh, things change. You adapt. Um, Can I still do what I did at 24? Um, In some cases, yes. In in some cases, I'm way better. In some cases, I can't do the same things. But you know what? I remember hearing... um, I'm a big rock and roll fan. I remember hearing um, uh, Led Zeppelin do their one-off concert <laughs> 10 years ago or 12 years ago um, when Robert Plant was a bit old, probably about the age I am right now. And he didn't sound like Robert Plant in 1973, but he was fantastic. And he made choices that were utterly appropriate because the, the notes he hit, and not, some of which he could still do, but some of which he couldn't, it didn't matter because he was doing it at such a high level with such soul that no one else could do it that way. And the truth is no one else can do what I do this way. No one else can do what you do your way. And I learned that sometimes the very best I can do, it is good enough. And that is what the audience is left with. Um, and so it's a huge learning curve that lasts until we punch our ticket. And that's the truth.
0: Before we go, I got a question for you. You do a lot of Comic Cons, and you know, you're know you out and about, people know you. Who gets the biggest reaction of your characters?
1: Um, boy, uh, that is a great question. People generally ask, which is your favorite character? And I say the next one, because it means I'm working. Right. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, if I had to pick one, uh, probably, well, let me, let me take that back. For years, I thought it was probably Pinky or Yakko. Animaniacs is huge. Something about Ninja Turtles that is, that is imbued in the souls of millions of people. But in terms of the biggest reaction, people love, I have to say, Pinky. However, lately, in the last three or four years, I did a character in a show called uh, Timmy Neutron Boy Genius. Is there was a guy named Carl Weezer who is this little chubby guy who is Jimmy's buddy? And for some reason, people love that little guy. And there are a couple of memes out there. There's one in which Carl, uh, in an episode of Jimmy Neutron, Billy West was playing a character and he was eating a a croissant. And Carl says, are you going to finish that croissant? And there are like a million hits (laughs) on that little sliver of animation. And so I don't care where I go. When people find out I'm Carl, I say, hey, say that line about the croissant. So I say, are you going to finish that croissant? I do it when we do our live shows because Randy says, hey, you know, there are a lot of other characters that Rob's got banging around in his melon. You guys know Jimmy Neutron. I start talking and everybody says, say that croissant. It's the, uh, Jesus Christ, it's the craziest damn thing I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. So now I'd have to say it's a toss-up between Pinky and Carl and... You know what? I'll take it. Whatever makes people
0: happy, I'm, I'm lucky to do it. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today, Rob. This was great. Um, people, follow Rob on Twitter. It's at Yakko Pinky. That's Y-A-K-K-O-P-I-N-K-Y. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, uh, Rob's book. Now, you can get the book on Amazon, right? Right, right. And um, they can uh,
1: also follow me on Instagram at Rob underscore Paulson, P-A-U-L-S-E-N. They can check out our Animaniacs in Concert show at Animaniacs in concertcom or just Google Animaniacs Live or Animaniacs in Concert and you'll come up with lots of cool little video of their show. And once this is over, we're gearing up for a bunch of other ones around the country. So, um... Thanks so much uh, for taking so much time with me, Steve. I doing? really appreciate
0: it. And, I got to tell you, uh, though, people. It
1: was an absolute joy.
0: I got to tell you, people, though, go to his IMDb. You'll be amazed. I mean, I talk to actors all the time. I've never seen more than 200. But anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm <laughs> only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.